morning we're going to be in the book of John in chapter 2, so please begin turning there. We're going to look at a passage um, that's almost in direct opposition to what we looked at last week as far as the, uh, the, the mood and what's going on. We looked at a wedding last week, and this week where Jesus is going to be turning over some tables in the temple. And uh, we're going to look at how our own worship is sometimes impeded by things that we would put in our lives and how Jesus can help us with that. Before we do that, before we look at the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to you and come to your word, we pray that you would help us. I think particularly as we come to a passage where you're showing a lot of emotion, where you're showing a lot of passion, uh, help us to be settled and help us to quickly understand what you would have us to know from this passage as opposed to going our own way with it. Um, open our hearts, and open our minds, that we might learn more of you, that we may be more like you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I read this passage, it reminded me of some of the trips that I took to a place in Washington, D.C. called the National Cathedral. I went there several times. I went there with a family and then a couple times on my own uh, with a friend. I actually saw Tim Keller, who's a, a Presbyterian pastor, preach the gospel there. But I don't believe the gospel was preached there very often. As you as you go through this church, you see lots of artifacts, lots of depictions of our own history in the stained glass. It's, it's a very beautiful place, uh, extremely Beautiful. The, the, all the gargoyles that are surrounding the building, these odd-shaped gargoyles. There's even a Darth Vader gargoyle and a, a gargoyle of a person taking a picture and lots of different things. Just pretty neat. A very fancy garden out to the one side of it of, with all the different sorts of plants that are growing in the area. Just beautiful. Beautiful furniture. This uh, chancel, which is, you know, the area where the preacher is and the choir and all this, is just adorned with all this gold and these statues and just a truly beautiful place. But until you look closer, and I went down in the bottom into the bookstore, I, I typically go to a bookstore if there is one, and I saw evidence of the contrary. Maybe not as beautiful as it seemed. There mingled in with the Christian books were every sort of other religious persuasion. I remember Tim Keller had a book, uh, Reasons for God, and right next to it was, you know, this a Buddhist book, and next on the other side of it was this New Age book, many different paths to God, or something along those lines. But I thought it was this really strong juxtaposition there, and the pastor there, and the church's kind of demeanor concerning that was they were ready to accept all religions with open arms and not as guests of course like we would accept someone from another religion into our church as a guest but as fellow worshipers all worshiping the same god this man said 
And so a place so beautiful and so magnificent, it was, I mean, it was impossible to take it all in. It took 83 years for the completion of this construction, and it began in the 1900s, so it wasn't like it was a Stone Age building that took a long time to build. It was just this massive building that took 83 years, $65 million to build. It had all the outward appearances of a Christian church, but it was little more than a bastion to pagan worship with a Christian veneer. And so as we come to this text in John today, we're going to consider another place of worship. It took lots of time and money to build, and this is the temple in Jerusalem. As we consider it, we're going to look at our own tendencies towards worship of other gods other than our Lord Jesus and how we let those things crowd the temple of our hearts. So we're going to consider three points, that Jesus drives out our idols, he drives out our prejudices, and ultimately he cleanses his church. So as we look at this text, verses 13 through 25 of John chapter 2, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sowed the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus, so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he had when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew. What was in man? Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a little background. Jesus was at the Passover. He went to Passover because he was Jewish, and all Jews were instructed to partake of the Passover. To remember Jesus' role on earth, he was here to set his people free from the yoke of slavery, which in this case was the ceremonial laws. But in order to do that, Jesus' fulfillments of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament, he had come to set his people free from these entanglements. In order to do that, he he himself had to do them perfectly. And so that's what he did. Historians tend to agree that there could have been as many as 500,000 pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Passover in this time period. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. So this wasn't just a little family get-together. This was Jews from all places, from all 
walks of life, even the God-fearers who were Gentiles, would come in and come together for the Passover. This was the most important date on the Jewish calendar. The Passover, remember the Passover celebrated, it celebrated the night that the angel death passed over the doorposts of the children of Israel when they were in captivity in Egypt. And why did, he, why did the angel death pass over? Because of the blood of the Lamb. Well, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, now walked among them. and He had come to save his people. And so, this act that Jesus does here in the temple begins the wheels turning. And from this point forward, there really tends to be this real sharp divide between those who follow Jesus like he says in the text, those who believe in his name and those who hated him. And this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus was very polarizing. You don't just walk into a temple with thousands of people and start trashing the place and not be polarizing. But this is one of the major themes of this book, is that we have to decide which way to go concerning Jesus. And this story here is no different. So first, Jesus drives out our idols. So it says, in the temple he found those who were selling, and it goes through the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons, and there were money changers there. You have to understand, people would come from miles around to sacrifice. And so it was more convenient to just buy an animal when they got to the temple. And so that's what they would do. The vendors were selling animals there. And in and of itself, not a bad thing. However, they were using the Gentile court in order to do this. We don't see this explicitly here in the text written, but this is more of a historical note that it was typical that they would sell animals in the Gentile court, which was part of the temple that was designed for the Gentiles to be able to worship God. So when Jesus went in and did this, I'm sure no one was expecting it because this was a temple. This was a place of worship. Jesus was a Jewish man. He wouldn't have even been in the, the Gentile court other than to see what was going on. He walks in and he starts just turning over the tables and he makes a cord and he starts whipping the animals so that they'll run out. I mean, can you imagine the money changers? What were they there for? Well, you think about all the different currencies were coming from all the different places of the world. These people were ch exchanging money to bring them into a Jewish currency so that they could buy Jewish goods. Can you imagine just pouring all of the money all over the place and all these different currencies and money just all over the just a mess? But his problem, what does he say? You've made my father's house a house of trade. And when he said this, the disciples remembered Psalm 69, which we read for our call to worship this morning, or part of it, where the Lord Jesus said, zeal for your house will consume me. Don't forget that as we read through the Psalms, Psalm 69, even though it says a Psalm of David, which David did write that Psalm, ultimately, we know who wrote them all. It was Jesus Christ himself. Zeal for your house will consume me, says the Lord. He's the writer of all 150 Psalms, not just 69. The disciples made this connection. 
as they would many times in the ministry of Jesus. And even some during the time and some after the time, as we see that later. So here we see Jesus display this emotion of zeal and anger as he drove out the vendors a way to open up the temple for the Gentiles to worship. And I want to bring out the fact that, yes, Jesus was angry. And some might say, well, then it's good for us to be angry too. And, and then they'll bring up this idea of a righteous anger. Yes, Jesus had a righteous anger. Anger is not a sinful thing in and of itself, and it was right for him to want to drive out the idols in the temple. Not a bad thing. And some might say, well, I can have righteous anger too. And my comment to that is, good luck with that. Especially with an emotion like anger, we have to be careful because something that's good, for instance, like anger over abortion or other some other kind of gross injustice in the world, which there's a lot of it, can easily turn be turned really bad really quickly. We aren't Jesus, and we have to be careful with that. We know anger, but we rarely know it without sin. And so I want us to be careful here. This isn't a license for us to go around trashing places, because we aren't the Lord of creation. Uh, it's not our house. And so we have to be careful with that. Just a word. But this isn't a text about righteous indignation, but rather the Lord of creation driving out obstacles for the worship of the Father. Don't forget, Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, was to be worshipped without these obstacles as well. This temple, being a temple to God and for God, in that case, was also built for our Lord Jesus. So as he walks into this temple and sees the atrocity there, he takes it personal. And so we have to consider our own hearts in this. We no longer have to approach the, the Lord in his temple, and we no longer have priests that intercede for us. We no longer have to make sacrifices. Jesus has fulfilled all those things, thankfully. However, we are told in several places in Scripture, oh, lots of places in Scripture, that the believer's heart is now the home of his Creator, that the God of the universe lives in the hearts of his children. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that don't you know that, the, the temp, that your heart is a temple to the Lord? 1 Peter chapter 2, very similar kind of passage. There are many things that we would place that we would place in the way of our worship to God. We do it every time we think, no God, I'm going to do it this way. And can you imagine the Jewish vendors that day thinking, you know, I know that this is the temple, but it won't matter if we set up booths out here. I mean they're just the Gentiles. We can think of that being as an audacious kind of thing, but every time we sin, we're very similar to that. For some of us, it may be like these men. Money, financial gain, concern of wealth, has our hearts so wound up that there's little left for the worship of God. It could be the approval of man. 
concern or, and fear of man is so beaten us that when we look around, it's hard to look around without thinking someone's judging me for whatever I'm doing. I mean, there are many things that we might put in the way of worship of our Lord. And they're very similar to the tables in the temple, the money changers, the vendors, all of these things that would get in our way of worshiping the Lord. What about us as a church? The types of things that we would have that would hinder us from worship as a corporate body. And I think it's good for us to consider that from time to time. And and nothing comes to mind right now for us here at Redeemer. But it's sometimes difficult for us to see ourselves clearly. So anytime we let the world into our doctrines, anytime we let the world into our practices, we allow a foothold for the evil one. And a crack can easily become a fissure. And so we have to be very diligent in our pursuit of the worship of God, not letting things in. I love this uh, passage, 1 Samuel chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 5 is a very vivid picture, I think, of what it looks like to have idols in the temple of the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 5, the first four verses. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. Now you have to understand what was the Jewish understanding of the Ark of God. It was the very presence of God. He was with the Ark. It was his footstool. And the Philistines, the enemies of the Lord's people, had captured the Ark and now were putting it in their temple to their god, this Dagon. So listen to what happens. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put it back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off in the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And so what happened when they tried to mix the Lord of creation with some other false god? The false god gets obliterated because it can't stand up next to the one true God. Christ is the one who can drive out the idols that we set up in our heart, whatever they are. You know, I mentioned anger. A lot of us, for a lot of us, that idol is control. And we have to be in control of things. Jesus ultimately is in control of all things. Why does he have the authority to go into the temple and drive things out? Because he's God. We don't have that type of authority. And so we can't exercise that kind of control. But maybe that's an idol for you. We need his grace and his mercy. We need to cling to the gospel, which reminds us, that he doesn't quit when it comes to our holiness and our sanctification. He will trash the idols of our heart, just like he trashed Dagon there in the temple of Ashtod. 
And so next, I want to look at how Jesus drives out our prejudices. And I think what this does is it helps us to turn the coin around here and look at the other side. Note that Jesus drives out the Jews from the Gentile court. <clears throat> they're taking up shop there. They're selling things to the Gentiles, exchanging money. Again, not a bad thing by itself. So we don't need to think, well, you know, like I was in a church that wanted to have a book table, and there were some people who were really upset that we were uh, selling books in the church. We're not not for profit. This is not what this passage is teaching us. So let's make sure we're careful to uh, to not interpret it poorly here. What was the problem? They were hindering the worship of other people. Hundreds of people would have been doing business there. There would have been very little room for any kind of worship and definitely very little quiet for any kind of prayer or meditation. The Jews wanted these so-called God-fearers to come and worship, but they also wanted to turn a profit when it came to them. And so they were willing to sacrifice their worship in order to do this. Turn to Mark chapter 11, where you have a similar account of this passage, of this uh, story. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 through 18. I'll read this, this account. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them. I love that. He was teaching them while he was doing this. And saying to them, It is not written, or is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at this teaching. So of course, they wanted to kill him after this spectacle. But the crowd was largely astonished at what he was saying, because what did he say? Did, or is it not written? Basically, did I not say that my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations? Yes. That's in Isaiah chapter 56. Why? Well, remember the Lord's promise to Abraham. Remember how these covenants link everything together. Well, here we are again, looking at one of them. All the nations would be blessed, is what uh, God told Abraham. All the nations would be blessed through his children. And this temple was a symbol that the, that the people of Israel meant for all the nations to come and worship the one true God. And here he was, in the flesh, and he had to clean house so that prayer could continue. So consider this for us. What types of obstacles might we put up so that others can't worship God? A lot of study has been done about worship styles and techniques and ways to keep visitors and all that jazz. And, and I think some of that's good. But I tend to see eye to eye with the Bible's method for church vitalization and that it's the plain means of grace, the preaching of the word, prayer, sacraments, just the plain things. So I'm not suggesting that we like make bulletins with holographic inserts or 
pass out popcorn during worship or anything crazy like that. Those aren't obstacles, friends, so I'm not getting there. Don't hear me say that. However, we do need to consider how we, the people of God, present ourselves, present our Lord to the people around us. Jesus of the Bible was passionate. We read here in this, he loved his people. He loved the truth. And whatever it took to make sure that the Father's will was completed, including overturning a bunch of tables in the middle of Passover. So remember that people will see Jesus in the way that we talk about him or don't talk about him. People will see Jesus in the way that we treat one another as his people and the way that we treat others. And again, don't don't hear some sort of secret secretive message because I think that we're doing great here as a church and uh, I believe that we're a very welcoming lot as a church. But as the Lord grows us, we have to hang on to this way about us or we'll quickly set up tables and we'll quickly push out the world around us that would be a worshiper. So we're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to pray and administer the sacraments that the world may know. We're not going to ever be anything flashy. But we have to keep our guard up around us as we do these things. Because it's easy to aspire to become the national cathedral rather than a tiny church that actually preaches the gospel. And lastly, Jesus cleanses his church. So there are many around who wonder. I mean, you can imagine, Jesus comes in, he starts trashing the place. This is Joseph's son, the carpenter. Yeah, I heard about him turning that water into wine. Uh, but who is he and why would he come in here and do this? So they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Or basically, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus could have just said, well, this is a temple to worship me. But that wouldn't have worked for most of the people there. So he gave them a picture of what would happen that proves his authority to do so and to, to say what he said. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's not talking about the building, but he's talking about his own body. And what does it say about the disciples? I love this. The disciples remembered later, and what did they do as a result of that? They believed. We're going to see this all through this book. They believed because of what he did, because of what he said. This isn't the first time we've seen this. And this isn't the first time the disciples believed either. But again, their belief is deepening. They're seeing Jesus more and more. This should happen for all of us as we read the scriptures. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up. Destroy this temple, and this one, all around you, this physical temple, that only that the priest gives you access to God, this one will be rendered obsolete. Destroy this temple, and the curtain to the holies of holies will be torn in two, because you will now have direct access to the Father. Destroy this temple. And I will raise it up, is what he said. It's his death that puts to death all sin and misery contained in our hearts. And it's not just the 
it's not just our sin that would hinder us from worship, but without Jesus, we can't worship him because we're dead in our sins. His death paved the way for the worshiper of God to finally see him and to worship him. But if he had simply died, we would still be in a world of misery. He rose again that we might have life, that we might worship him as he commanded us to do, free from sins that would entangle us, with our gazes fixed on him who gives us faith, who gives us light to see him with. It said many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. Again, our belief is strengthened as we read about his works, as we see the works that he's doing in our lives. And I love this next passage here. He knows the hearts of men. No one needed to tell him about men because he knew what was in a man. He knew that already. And even though he knows our hearts, how does he know our hearts? Well, he lived the life that we live. He knows us inside and out, not only because he created us, because he walked in our shoes. Even though he knows us, he died and was risen to set us free from the worship of other things so that we might turn to him and worship him instead. So in conclusion, Christians, may our prayer be that we would consider, or may our prayer be that Christ would enter the temple of our hearts and that he would overturn everything so that he can be first, middle, and last. Not only that we might go to him unhindered, but that others might be able to do so also. And so as we consider this text, let that be our prayer, that we would be able to come to him and worship unhindered, and that we would allow others to do so as well. Let's pray. Jesus, as we consider the things that are set up in our own temples, the temple of our heart, as we consider all the idols that we would have set up, that we would compete with you with as we worship you. Lord, we pray that you would come in and personally obliterate those idols like you did to Dagon. Throw them down so that they're shattered on the ground that we might better worship you and those things that we would also put in the way of others in their worship of you. Help us to cast those down as well, that we might present you in the words that we speak and in the deeds that we do in the purest way. Help us to do that, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.